0: From The Rising, we've got a great show for you today. Brianna, what are we covering?
1: Well, we're going to touch on why AOC got into hot water on social media while talking about President Biden's push to cancel some student loan debt. And we'll take a closer look at the Don't Say Gay bill's exact restrictions. We'll also look back at the best and worst moments from the White House Correspondents' Dinner.
0: But first, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the Ukraine and Poland over the weekend When asked about sending more aid to Ukraine without provoking Russia or Russian President Vladimir Putin, she said America should not be, quote, bullied by bullies. According to Pelosi, the purpose of her trip was to send a clear message to the world. America stands with our NATO allies and Ukraine. But some European countries are skeptical of the U.S. According to The New York Times, a French defense analyst said there is a sense in Europe that the U.S. is dragging everyone into a different war citing Biden's comments about, quote, the butcher of Moscow and his infamous Putin-must-go speech. Hmm.
1: Meanwhile, in the U.S., lawmakers are preparing to take up another relief package for Ukraine. Last month, a $13.6 billion package was approved. President Biden is now asking Congress to provide an additional $33 billion.
0: President Biden got a readout from Pelosi and other Democratic members meeting with Zelensky in Ukraine Congressman Adam Schiff said, there were a lot of things that we discussed that I had not heard before in terms of needs that Ukraine has, leading some to speculate even more aid and weaponry will be sent in the future, which is exactly the kind of, you know, endless, uh, gradual ramp up, uh, gradual getting dragged into conflict that I thought we were trying to avoid by the quick, heavy sanctions and and the sort of, you know, blitz, like, no, back off, kind of approach, if we're just going to be in a protracted proxy war with Russia, I mean, that, the risks are considerable, right? The risks of eventual accidental nuclear escalation are right. there. Uh, so, so these are some serious things to contemplate that the Biden administration is actually is giving less and less. You know, at first we gave them, I think, some, some props for clearly saying, no, no fly zone, right. that's crazy. But now it's just, OK, this is going to be a commitment forever.
1: Yeah. Don't be bullied by bullies. It has to be one of the least diplomatic statements I've ever heard. It's it's right up there there with
0: with hurt people, hurt people. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like One, it's vague. I'm not even really sure what it's supposed to mean. (laughs) But it it basically seems to boil down to don't back down no matter what. Don't back down no matter what. And when you read the statements from these politicians about the goal being to win the war, it becomes increasingly clear that that doesn't mean What a a negotiated victory is likely to mean when we're talking about a nuclear superpower like Russia and a country like Ukraine, which obviously cannot win a war by any obvious metric of overpowering the other country's military. What we're talking about is using this as a proxy battle. And I think that politicians are concerned. Other international figures are concerned to see statements like. Uh, Joe Biden's, you know, Putin must go uh, to see them talk about def- switching the language more recently. to talking about the goal being weakening Russia, weakening Russia's power goals that extend much farther beyond defending Ukraine's sovereignty. I think they're they're kind of showing their hand in this moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it you know how much more. Can the American people be because we are having to accept a lot of suffering due to the inflation, the gas prices that, you know, there we have economic problems at home. Everything was not rosy and, and, and perfect here. And is that what is that what the American people are actually being asked to do? Are they actually being asked? No, this is a this is a war in all but name with Russia. And thus, you're going to have to make sacrifices don't the people get a say in that yeah. don't we i mean right technically the old fashioned way congress has to declare war on russia mm-hmm. we're not going to do that because we're not formally going to be at war right. with russia but that is unsatisfying from a from the standpoint of a democracy how things are decided
1: and You know, at this point in the Biden administration leading up to a midterm year, people are going to notice that we had all of these protracted conversations about how we were going to pay for, you know, support for children and families in the middle of a global pandemic and economic crisis. And I haven't heard a single how you pay for it as we're talking about another thirty three billion dollars for a war effort. We're going to have a segment later about ASC getting into hot water over student loan cancellation and everybody, including a lot of centrist Democrats, wringing their hands about what this means to be bailing out this population. And nobody is talking about the disproportionality and what we're willing to spend money on for a population halfway across the world.
0: Right. Completely fair. A point I frequently make, and the hypocrisy is on Republicans as well, Mm. who will say, oh, yes, we're spending too much, all this reckless spending, but we'll spend any amount of money On the military. That's a bipartisan problem, but the hypocrisy is even worse on the Republican side because Mm -hmm. they have more pronounced or louder supposed commitments to fiscal restraint that just go out the window on this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, the First Lady is slated to visit Europe this week, making stops in Romania and Slovakia to meet with Ukrainian refugees. Over the weekend, Ukraine began evacuating civilians from a steel plant outside of Mariupol in efforts to move 1,000 Ukrainians who hunkered down inside the facility to hide from advancing russian troops according to president Zelensky, about 100 people have been evacuated so far however the evacuation was temporarily paused sunday due to security concerns efforts were expected to resume today at 8 a.m local time mm. you know it, it's terrible to watch and it's
0: absolutely why it's so
1: difficult to have these conversations because it's because you're natural humanitarian, you know, humanistic instincts are butting up against the reality that we live in a horrible, dangerous, violent world where these kinds of acts are happening all the time and no one is having a substantive conversation about when and where and why america should continue to behave as the world's policeman. what kinds of aid and interventions are going to best bring the conflict to a close more quickly as opposed to escalating conflict in a way that is basically allowing the people of ukraine to be used as cannon fodder and our proxy war to in the words of now some senior officials weaken
0: russia right i mean it's it's a it's a harder situation than you know some other military uh, situations have been because there, there is a, a clearer aggressor in this case. They're being invaded, and they have the will to fight. They do want to fight. Zelensky has the support and the credibility among his people more than he did than before the the conflict. Mm. So that makes it uh, it makes it I think more complicated, genuinely more complicated. But just because they they are morally in the right that they deserve or, or, or want support doesn't mean that the kind of support they want is the right support or, or that we're authorized to do it or that we've authorized our government to do it on our behalf without our, our say so. That's just not the way it's supposed to work. Yeah.
1: And, and how long does that support hold? <clears throat> does that support still exist absent knowledge that they're getting so much aid and support from the West, from the United States of America. Right. The confidence in Zelensky as a leader and the desire to keep fighting, does that persist without our support? And what ethical role is the United States then playing in prolonging a conflict that it might very well know is not going to end in a satisfactory way for the people of Ukraine?
0: No, it's, it's, a, fair, it's a fair point. It is, it's a very difficult situation, though, because I, they, might, they might just want to fight on Because it's their home, and and even if the whole country is taken over, there's then there's going to be a a sort of guerrilla campaign, uh, like that kind of thing, forever until Russia gives up, which I kind of think is going to happen, one way or the other.
1: Well, we'll certainly be here watching for that, covering it as it develops, and I will be looking forward to hearing more from you, Robbie, and your radar next. Robbie, what's on your radar today?
0: Well, last week, a curious announcement appeared in Politico and elsewhere. The Department of Homeland Security is creating a disinformation governance board to discuss strategies for reducing the spread of so called misinformation, specifically with respect to foreign policy. DHS is especially concerned about misinformation that originates from Russia or involves Russian influence on American politics. The head of the board will be Nina Jankowicz, a previously a fellow at the Wilson Center, a foreign policy-focused think tank. She was also a Fulbright Fellow, worked for the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry in Kyiv. She is probably a smart, distinguished, possibly well-meaning public servant. That doesn't change the fact that the very existence of a government-run disinformation board raises serious First Amendment concerns. After all, it is not the U.S. government's responsibility to decide what is and what is not misinformation. The people decide that for themselves. Moreover, the federal government has shown itself not particularly adept at identifying misinformation. Government-supported efforts to suppress the COVID-19 lab leak theory and the Hunter Biden laptop story have proven to be disastrously misguided. In both of those cases, Social media sites centered those stories because supposed experts in the mainstream media and in the government gave them bad recommendations. In fact, when then-candidate for president Joe Biden was asked about the Hunter Biden laptop story, he confidently, confidently deemed it misinformation, citing 50 former government intelligence officials who suggested the story was fake and planted by Russia. So if the spy masters for the FBI and the CIA can't always tell the truth from lies or conveniently label the truth as a lie when it serves their preferred narratives, why would this DHS board be any different? Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas tried to put the public at ease on Sunday, saying this to CNN.
2: Let's talk about a a different topic, which is uh, what you are calling, your department is calling the Disinformation Governance Board. You unveiled that uh, this week. Republicans are calling it Orwellian and comparing it to the Ministry of Truth in the novel 1984. Can you clarify what exactly is this? What exactly will this disinformation governance board do? Will it monitor American citizens?
3: Dan, I'm very pleased to do so. It's clear. I mean, those criticisms are precisely the opposite of what this small working group within the Department of Homeland Security uh, will do. And um, I think we probably could have done a better job of communicating what it does and does not do.
0: So from my, my orcas's perspective, the Misinformation Board has created misinformation about the Misinformation Board's scope and purpose. Great, I feel better already, don't you?
3: Disinformation that creates a threat to the security of the homeland is our responsibility to address, mm-hmm. and this department has been addressing it for years, throughout the years of the prior administration, on an ongoing basis disinformation from
0: russia right china we know the problems
2: but it's still not clear to me how this governance board will act What, what will it do
0: yeah kudos to dana bash by the way for actually grilling mayorkas here you can watch the rest of the interview if you like but at no point does he explain how the board will avoid committing the serious errors that have characterized all previous attempts to prohibit misinformation the most comforting thing he said was that the board won't have much actual power since it's only acting in an advisory role, supposedly. Mayorkas also expressed full confidence in Jankowitz, the head of the board. It turns out, however, she appears to have suspected that the Hunter Biden story was Russian-backed misinformation. She has lots of old tweets to that effect. Now, she is the author of the recent book, How to Be a Woman Online, Surviving Abuse and Harassment and How to Fight Back. So I read just this section of it that was published at Wired in which she essentially suggests that online harassment, which is a real problem to be sure, is something endured almost exclusively by women. seems like the book's entire framing, to be frank. It's a false framing, though, as my friend the journalist Kathy Young wrote in a 2020 feature for Reason magazine. Studies consistently show fewer women than men actually say they experience Internet harassment of every kind except for sexual harassment. Counterintuitively, even so-called revenge porn, non-consensual exposure of intimate images may happen to men more often, according to the 2017 Pew survey that Kathy Young cites. And while women in the survey were considerably more likely than men to rate their online harassment experiences as extremely or very upsetting, they were no more likely to report negative consequences ranging from mental and emotional stress to problems at work or school, end quote. So it's a, it is a, a real problem, but there's a kind of, framing of it that some uh, feminist progressive writers, like apparently this new head of the disinformation board, put a spin on it that it's only about uh, harassment toward women. Now, in addition to being supposedly a misinformation expert, Jankowitz is quite a talented singer, appears to enjoy combining these two talents. So let's watch this.
4: it's how you hide a, little hide a little lie, it's how you hide a little, hide a little lie, it's how you hide a little lie, it's how you hide a little lie, when Rudy Giuliani shared that intel from Ukraine, or oh, when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain, they're laundering disinfo and we really should take note, and not support their lies
1: with our wallet, voice or vote, oh!
0: Is this the last thing we will hear before we're sent to re-education camps? Or maybe they play that at the re-education camp. Do they just blare it while you're in your cell so that you're ready for the brainwashing?
1: Robbie, it's it's. I feel so bad. I'm sorry. I
0: hate show tunes. I just hate them. But
1: all right, we had a recent conversation where it was revealed that you're a big Chitty Chitty Bang Bang fan. So let's not overstate. All right, the case, all right fair. <laughs> wow, wow, that was that was
0: off the record. Okay.
1: But look, I, I have a, a, a soft spot in my heart for theater kids, but they need to know the time and the place. Like, <laughs> you have to know if you TikTok it, you will get dragged by the internet. She's made her bed; she's sleeping in it. Yeah, obviously, you know. To your point, the bigger issue here, apart from her cringe, is that the government is establishing an agency to do something that the government has never demonstrated an ability to do not just in general history, but in the very, very recent past. And the areas where they are specifically saying they want to focus, uh, Russia misinformation, you know, all of that stuff is exactly where they have failed so
0: recently. 100%. So
1: they just have to be able to articulate what the new standard is going to be. And if this were an effort to say, fund independent media, so there can be independent fact checking, I think a lot of people would be more excited about that kind of an, an intervention. People would be excited. This is not it. This is not it. I will say that I did read about this a little bit. And some of the misinformation that they're attempting to address is the kind of thing um, that caused there to be that influx of Haitian immigrants at the border because there was this messaging that went out and WhatsApp groups, et cetera, that misrepresented what Biden's amnesty policy was and caused a lot of people to think that they could come and, you know, have access that they weren't able to have and ended up, you know, kind of suffering and languishing at the border in all of these ways. I think that that makes sense for the Department of Homeland Security to try to monitor and observe when those kinds of messages are going out that cause mm-hmm. real harm to to the groups that are now uh, laboring under the misapprehension that they were going to be able to find some amnesty here, regardless of what you think about the existence or whether there should be better amnesty programs.
0: Yeah, in, if, it, if this case. board's purpose is to scrutinize... DHS and the FBI and other government intelligence officials for spreading misinformation. <laughs> that would be a great idea. Yes, right. there's a lot of government-backed right. misinformation on Russia, COVID, et cetera. But so
1: much of the misinformation isn't misinformation, and this is my my favorite anecdote: is when I was asked by a reporter at one point uh, while working on the Bernie campaign, "What do you think of the fact that Russia is is spamming Black Americans, saying that this, you know, there's discrimination in this mm-hmm. country, and what are you going to do about it? And the Democratic Party hasn't done enough to help Black people." And I said to them, well, the issue here is that there's no lie. There's no lie. And you might not like it as an inconvenient truth that they're creating, a, making this a wedge issue, but the way to deal with this so-called misinformation is to actually address the concerns of the population who are drawn into this kind of messaging. So so much of this is the, the problem is actually truth, not the lie.
0: <laughs> I, and I know you're really excited to dig into that book she wrote. I, uh, oh, it's, uh, I bet it's going to, I bet it, posi- I mean, I don't know, but it seems like it's the kind of, oh yeah, those harassing Bernie bros, <laughs> they just mistreat me. Yeah, and- I
1: got I to gotta scan the footnotes to see if I'm named person. (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right. Well, up next, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says the quiet part out loud when it comes to student debt cancellation. Stay tuned. As conversations around canceling student debt continue to heat up, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez weighed in on her Instagram story this weekend. When asked how canceling student debt helps those who've already paid off their loans, She replied in part, quote, well, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Not every program has to be for everybody. It all comes around. It's okay. We can support things we won't directly benefit from.
1: Uh, Real Clear Politics White House reporter Philip Wegman adds, quote, the White House does not, meanwhile, have an answer for those who paid off their loans already or hustled to avoid said loans as Biden mulls loan forgiveness.
0: Yeah, right. This is uh, this is a line I've trotted out in opposition to this policy. Mm -hmm. And I, I know you have your response. Go ahead. Well, look. I am one of those people. I'm
1: in both camps, right? And I hate to keep putting myself in the middle of this. But the reality is I have paid more than the balance of my $180,000 loan. Because of the nature of interest and eight percent interest rate, oh, rates, my i have ah. i I paid one hundred eighty thousand dollars. Ah, right? every time is, you say it, I'm like <laughs> it hurts me. You know, and I'm not getting any of that money back. I'm yeah. someone who, you know, paid more than the minimum on my ten-year payment plan because I was trying to get ahead of it. I hustled, I scrapped, I did all the things you were supposed to do. But at the end of the day, the question, I, I don't, I don't care about what's in the past. And even if I have paid off my loans by the time any one of these policies comes to fruition, I'll be happy that people don't have to be in the same situation I am. It's always the case that new government policy whether it's the innovation of social security or medicaid or any number of policies that are enormously popular there were people who died or went into retirement or suffered a year or two or six months before the policy that don't get the advantage of that and nowhere are we asking why so many people in my generation have forgone buying mortgages Uh, having kids, all these traditional milestones, in part because of their student loan balance. At no point are we saying, well, we shouldn't pay into supporting public schools. We shouldn't pay into the tax base. We shouldn't pay into support of military intervention. I said all those things.
0: I said all those things (laughs) this
1: morning. I don't. To the left is my point is being very ideologically consistent. And there's a real kind of, I think, anti-patriotic... Uh, approach to policy that I don't expect, especially from so many liberals who say they support these kinds of things. And the last point I would just make about this is I would love it to be retroactive. I would love for all kinds of things to happen. But the reason we're talking about this specific policy is not because anyone believes it's the perfect policy for the moment. It's because. Biden and the conservative Democrats have made it clear that we're not passing anything when it comes to child tax relief and any other stuff that is higher on the agenda because we can't get the Senate on board. This is something Biden can do with his executive authority. This is what's on the table, so he should do it. Uh,
0: but another issue with it being that you, you still, like the, the government can't re, uh, repossess the credential you got from having taken out no. this loan, right? Which, is, which gives you a, not everyone because some of them are really bad credentials, but gives you... Who has this debt? If, as long as you did finish, if you didn't finish, well, that's a, doubly that's a, screwed. That's
1: a big issue. Something like 40% of people finish are very with student debt, didn't you know, finish, and, and so there's this money. conversation about how oh, most Americans don't have a college degree, but most Americans did do some college, and the problem is that there's so many people who paid all of that money weren't able to finish for various reasons. Many of them fi- financial in nature, financial hardship, and now we're still pa- uh, uh, forced to pay back that loans with interest without the ability to have increased earning potential
0: yeah i'll, I'll read um so jd vance a, a candidate i don't particularly care mm-hmm. for had a statement on this that i mostly agreed let me
1: oh yes, pull I, it up i remember that one uh, he,
0: so he said the basic thing is that the student debt system frankly the entire college education system in this country has become incredibly corrupt let me give you an example one of our biggest supporters used to work in the admissions office i won't say which school in southwestern ohio Basically, they would admit people knowing they could never complete the degree program. They were saddled with a ton of debt. They would give them fake scholarships to make the debt burden seem not as high as the sticker price. And then, of course, all the people that they knew could never complete the program, never completed the program. I think the problem with student debt forgiveness on the backs of taxpayers. So it basically doesn't force any reform to that incredibly corrupt system. It's in some ways a bailout for the people who are causing the problem. It's one of these things where if you do it, you'll help a lot of young kids right now, but you'll hurt the next 20 years of young kids who are exposed to an even more corrupt, even more inflated system. So I think there are a lot of things that we should do that we should be thinking about doing. One, make student loans dischargeable in bankruptcy. I absolutely agree with that. Mm -hmm. Two, something like a large university endowment tax and fund some student loan support through that. But anything that doesn't go at the universities, I think, is not just papering over the real problem, but actually making that problem worse.
1: So of course. Those are all good ideas. Ideas, by the way, that I never heard J.D. Vance say anything about before this moment. He put out a dumb tweet that I talked about on my radar last, uh, last week about how we shouldn't support student debt and I think got a lot of pushback, good pushback. And so now he's pivoted to saying, well, we have to address the system. We would all love to address the system. And if you wanted to address the system, maybe some folks should have voted for Bernie Sanders who wanted to make colleges to public colleges and universities tuition free and unwind the perverse incentives that you articulated, which are that all of these 18 year olds with no collateral or any ability to show that there's going to be, uh, you know, uh, support for this loan, that they're going to be able to pay back this loan, are given hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to college because they are federally guaranteed loans. These banks have no exposure. The, 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 oftentimes, it's the federal government who's the issuer. There are these for-profit institutions like uh, SoFi, these re- refinancing companies that are making an arm and a leg off of this. It's SoFi, by the way, that it's recommended that Joe Biden only cancel $10,000 of debt. This is something that they want because they understand that they can continue to profit if he cancels just what amounts to Interest payments for one year, but then ends the moratorium so they can continue to build up the balances and make a profit and force and push people into refinancing, which they profit from, right? All of that you know, is a problem and would be solved by fundamentally overhauling our education system. But again, none of these people supported it when Bernie Sanders was advocating for it. Nobody was supporting it before this moment. They're only talking about this to pivot away from the fundamental issue that this is what Joe Biden can do in the moment. This is what he can do. He cannot make public colleges and universities tuitions free. If J.D. Vance wants that, he should be putting pressure on Republicans in Congress to back that kind of legislation, and I'm sure we could all get behind it.
0: I don't think they should be free. I, I think they should be affordable. They, if it's a public... If it's a public university, then it should be affordable to the Affordable to whom? To the taxpayers of that state. To okay, the people and if, who pay money into it. It should be if, affordable. The state legislature should lower the price. So what of should the their, price be
1: for someone who's earning a minimum wage which is less than twenty thousand dollars a year?
0: You should you should be able to 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 work and to pay for it the way ever, the way most people were able to do until 30 years ago
1: well 30 years it ago many a, fewer people went to college right. so most people still even when colleges were much cheaper than they are today but mo- we're not able to. much of,
0: much of the price is administrative bloat you could fire Absolutely. everyone who well. works in the student life <laughs> diversity sustainability office in fact you'd have a better experience if you got rid of those people because their only job is to turn uh young people into militant woke cancel culture (laughs) well i mean these are not uh, this is the, the cancel culture problem does not have a lot of policy solutions and in fact i'm against most of the you know the the sort of rake disney over the coals approach but to the extent it is being fostered by bad administrators who cost a fortune in the university system Yes, we can actually get rid of them. They they work for a public institution. The taxpayers deserve scrutiny over how it is run. How it is run is bad. And it's just I mean, we, we agree. It, well, it is a scam. Yes, they're, they're selling they're,
1: a scam. It, it is a scam, but I also don't want to lose focus of the fact that as a huge percentage, and again, I, I actually did today's episode of Bad Faith Podcast on this with an expert, a consumer debt expert, who went to community college himself and then transferred ultimately into, into Yale Law School, that a huge percentage of people with student debt are people who are going, to, are going to community colleges, are people who went to exploitative for-profit universities, are people who got vocational degrees, which everyone acts like don't cost money when they cost a great deal. And those are the people we should be thinking about when considering whether or not people should have access to education. There was a time in this country where no one considered high school to be a right the way that we consider it to be now and paid out of the tax breaks. And the exact same arguments about it being a regressive policy applied to high school 100 years ago in the same way that we're talking about college now. And if we live in a country where all of these people are going to require you to have a master's degree or at least a college degree to teach school and do all of these other kinds of things, then we have to be clear eyed about making that education accessible or Reform things and stop asking people to jump through so many hoops to get a basic low paying job.
0: Actually, accessible would be, I guess, better than pretend accessible the way it is now, where it seems accessible and then you're screwed later. 100%. But I would still, I would worry about, I don't want to, I want to stop creating incentives, systemic incentives incentives for people to delay entering the workforce as long as possible sure. it doesn't seem healthy for our society that it more no no no. now you need a now you need a graduate degree you need a master's degree you need a phd then there, but there's no job there are not enough jobs 100 percent. yeah
1: 100 percent. so hopefully i'm looking forward to seeing a lot of uh, proposals from our republicans <laughs> <laughs> in congress about how to reform our education system but our rising panel is next where we'll discuss more details around florida's controversial parental rights and education bill Stick around. Florida's controversial parental rights and education bill, also known as the Don't Say Gay legislation, is threatening to pull a decades-long student support guides implemented to help teachers maneuver the issues of LGBTQ plus students in class and after school clubs.
0: Now, even though the word gay is not written in the bill, it does prohibit instruction relating to gender identity and sexual orientation kindergarten through third grade, and potentially restricts instruction for some older students as well.
1: Meanwhile, the New York Times dug deep on how DeSantis changed Florida's political landscape and suggested presidential ambitions. The report reads, quote, Florida has transformed over the past two years as Governor Ron DeSantis has increased and flexed his power to remarkable effect, embracing policies that once seemed unthinkable. That has made the Republican governor a favorite of the party's Fox News viewing base and turned him to a possible presidential contender. Here to discuss are Democratic strategist, Crystal Knight, and partner at the CGCN Group, Sam Godoldig. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you. So, Sam, what should we know? uh, What is is really the news peg of this? Why are we talking about this in particular today? Has anything changed of late?
5: Well, I I think if you talk to... Republican voters or Republican members of Congress, they uh, um, they feel bullied. You know, the, the way that I think mainstream news media covers Republican policies in these issues, um, it portrays them as the bully. And uh, I, I think the way the Republican voter and, and member of Congress and senator and presidential candidate feels is they're protecting bullied parents who don't want these policies shoved down their kids' throats or, or the way they're raising their kids. So they feel bullied by the national media. They feel bullied by Hollywood and, and, and the, the, you know, the morals that wind up in kids' shows. They feel bu- bullied by teachers' unions. They feel bullied by Fauci, who's, you know, insisting that their children wear masks, despite the fact that they think that the kids are at low risk. They feel bullied by a Congress that is controlled by Democrats. They feel, you know, bullied by a, a Democratic presidential administration. They feel bullied by everyone, and um, in their view, I think this is them pushing back on all of those institutional bullies.
0: Yeah, uh, Crystal, you know, I've said on this show before there are a lot of aspects of this uh, law that I think are are misguided and confusing and will, you know, lead to a lot of frivolous lawsuits. But the principle that I I think Republicans are, are... are making a, a, a central focus of their campa- of their likely to be successful campaign to retake every level of government. It's the idea that the school systems are out of touch with what parents actually want. They're teaching things that parents don't approve of, and they're hiding it or they don't want to be transparent about it on on subjects like gender, sexuality, and race. And Republicans are now making an attempt. Are, are really, that is the central push that they're making. You know, what are, what can Democrats and progressives, how can they answer that, uh, without resorting to a kind of, you know, caricature of all these efforts as, as only about, you know, animus toward marginalized groups?
6: Yeah, that's a great question, and I think what we're seeing in Florida, really, if we analyze all of the legislation that's happened over the last two years, Florida has become ground zero for all things education and for all things as it relates to redistricting and, you know, um, women's rights as well. But I think as it relates to education, what we're seeing with CRT becoming a critical issue, not only in, you know, national politics, but also in state politics, what, you know, the other guests may call bullying. I think Democrats or progressives would call, you know, Uh, limiting a a child's expression to freely express him or herself, depending on how they choose to identify. And that's something that absolutely parents should, you know, if if there's a child under the age of 18, have a say-so in, but also children are their own person, and they also should have the opportunity to freely express themselves in a school setting. And so what we're seeing with these laws that are popping up they're asking teachers um, to really protect students, but the law, the legislation, is limiting students' access to their freedom of expression, their freedom to choose and be and live out whomever they desire to be in this life. And so that's why this issue, these issues, are so, um, you know, controversial and they're you know they're in the news all the time because it appears that this republican state or this republican led legislature is intentionally creating laws that would make it harder for an lgbt lgbtq student to freely express him or herself and that just should not be the case in the educational setting it,
0: sam how well do you think the republican party is navigating uh... these issues because my sense is Right, more transparency, more giving back, more control to parents, uh, keeping uh, some of the particularly divisive, more activist adjacent training type stuff out of kindergarten through third grade is popular and is going to be a win for the Republican Party. But there's, but it's almost I, I see. How it can go too far and made with, with like the, the sudden smear that absolutely everyone who disagrees with you is a groomer, which is like very reminiscent of the everyone on the left calling you a racist if you disagree with them. Like, I'm going to be screamed at <laughs> one or the other in that direction, like for all time is miserable. Um, it, can the Repub- Republican Party, you know, stay, stay focused on this aspect of it without, you know, going like way too far down uh, the rabbit hole?
5: Yeah, this is politics and, you know, in the mainstream media and cable news, and, you know, the social media outlets are all, you know, amped up about this and, and that creates, you know, heat. So, um, you know, right now, Republicans feel like they're well situated uh, on the side of more voters than less. And I think you'll see them continue to feel like they're in a good position. Um, I, I think the reason Democrats are in the position they're in is because they're reacting to the base of their party and they're pushing policies that I think some mainstream, more moderate or conservative Democrats uh, can't get their arms around. Um, elections have consequences. And uh, I assume, you know, when Republicans have a good election in November, their base will push the party into positions that it's moderate Republicans don't feel comfortable with. And we're just going to go back and forth. And because the media loves covering these fights, uh, they they draw a lot of attention to these issues. And, um, you know, it, we can get into a whole conversation about how messed up the system is with, you know, the stuff you guys cover, how you cover, not you personally, but the, the stuff media covers, how they cover it, what, you know, what generates clicks, what generates attention, what generates, you know, awards for, you know, writing and what members of Congress react to and what politicians react to as far as, you know, from small dollar donations to, you know, media hits, to, you know, getting reelected, to feeling like they're comfortable in their in their political positions. So, uh, unfortunately, it's probably not gonna calm down. It'll just keep getting hotter and hotter is, is my prediction. Um well, well, Sam- it's a shame, but it's the system.
1: Sam, you mentioned that you know Democrats are pushing these policies and and elections have consequences. I'm struck by the fact that we're talking about Florida, where there was uh, a $15 minimum wage, for example, on the ballot in 2020. It passed overwhelmingly with 60 percent of the vote. And that election does not have consequences because Republicans in the state have been trying to push back against that uh, ballot initiative ever since then. We have what we're talking about now is bills being put forward by Republicans, not Democrats, to create these laws. These are pre-existing you know advisory guidelines that ex- exist that they don't have any binding effect just guidelines for teachers of how to handle situations if a student comes to them with gender identity questions or issues you know Is it really fair to characterize this as the Democrats launching a culture war when so many of these these guidelines in the first place were a response to the fact that so many on the left and liberals and even moderates were concerned that sexual education was being kept out of school, that there was a lot of influence from the religious right in school Um, historically? And only just now have we had a little bit of a a social shift where some of the more prevailing liberal norms are making it into the classroom. What is the chicken and the egg of this here?
5: I think more Republicans or more conservative voters are moving to the state, giving it a, you know a redder hue than it has had in the past. And I do think that because there's more Republicans in the state, and these issues are getting the attention for the reasons we talked about, uh, it won't stop. And again, you know, it, it, who decides who the bully is is up to you know each individual. And I think there's a lot more for people, at least in Florida right now, that feel like this culture that you know Democrats side with is unfair to these parents who feel helpless and uh, don't want their kindergartners through third graders learning about these issues or even talking about them. And I, I just think there's more voters that feel that way than don't. So I, I think they Republicans think it's A, a winning issue, B, an issue that they actually care about, and see, there's more Republicans in the state of Florida than there ever have been, and the state's trending redder. So, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I don't know how to answer the question any other way than I, I just think there's more Republicans in Florida
0: now. Yep. What's your response, Crystal?
6: Well, I think what what we're seeing on the Republican side is Republicans decided to wage this education war after the 2020 elections, and it's that there's, there's no other way to really quite, you know, frame it or explain it. And so this isn't something, this isn't a talking point that the progressives or the Democratic Party brought forth. This is something that was systematically created, curated, and now it's a, a major issue and messaging point for this midterm election. We also saw it become an issue in the gubernatorial Election in Virginia, um, where the Republican candidate was successful. So that was a real bellwether, whether or not CRT could really run a a national campaign in a number of different states. And so when the other guest, you know, speaks about this is something that people care about, this is something that the Republican Party cares about. They care about waging cultural wars through education. They have ginned up their base um, to their own credit on the education side, and so. What that has forced the Democratic Party to do is to become more reactive instead of getting in front of the messaging, talking about how critical race theory is not taught in K through 12 education. This is something that again is a talking point that is really meant to divide this country and it has divided the country and it will continue throughout the midterm election. So what we'll see is, you know, if this actually sticks. Um, You know, the first Senate elections are happening this month um, across a number of different states, and then the the midterm elections will play out in November. And so we'll see if this has really been a, um, a successful strategy for the Republican Party come November.
1: Yes. Waging a culture war does seem to have more legs than actually talking about wages. Thank you, Crystal. Thank you, Sam, for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you. Up next, linguist Noam Chomsky named the only Western statesman who has suggested, quote, right. Uh, sorry, so who has suggested the quote right way out of Ukraine? We'll find out who. Stay tuned.
0: Journalist Glenn Greenwald highlighted a recent interview with Professor Noam Chomsky, where he touches on the Russia-Ukraine war. Let's watch.
7: Well, there is, fortunately, one. Statesman in the United States and Europe who has laid out a person of high political figure who has made a very sensible statement about how you can solve the crisis, namely by facilitating negotiations instead of undermining them and uh, moving towards establishing some kind of accommodation in Europe maybe a long in which there are no military alliances, but just mutual accommodation. Uh, He didn't say it, but it's something like uh, what George H.W. Bush, the first Bush, not the second, uh, proposed in the early 90s in his, when after the collapse of the Soviet Union, proposed what they called a partnership for peace which would be open for Europeans generally, Eurasians as well. It wouldn't eliminate NATO, but he would live up to the promise that NATO would not expand to the East, firm promise to Gorbachev, keep to that, allow NATO there, but kind of de-emphasize it. So other countries could join, including Russia for that matter, join the Partnership for Peace. uh, Tajikistan joined, for example, not NATO, and moved towards a world, a Europe, Eurasia, with no military alliances. Actually, de Gaulle had similar vision. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, in his initiatives trying to contact Putin, suggested something similar. So, going back to the one Western statesman, he didn't mention all of this. But he suggested something similar, move towards negotiations and diplomacy instead of escalating the war. Uh, Try to see if he can bring about an accommodation,
1: uh, which would be roughly along these lines. Uh, his name is Donald J. Trump. Chomsky said later in the interview that he believes former President Trump is a, quote, deeply dangerous figure. Yet he is the one Western statesman who has said, quote, the right way
0: out, end quote, of Ukraine. So I, I get where Chomsky was coming from. And, you know, previously, right, Donald Trump has been less interventionist and less hawkish than other elements of the Republican Party, even than less less than other elements of the Democratic Party than Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton, et cetera. Right. He has said we should end these disastrous foreign entanglements. He talked about getting out of Afghanistan. He didn't actually do it. I left that to Biden. So I get all that. I do not. I cannot recall and I cannot find and I have no idea. With all due respect to Professor Chomsky, I have no idea what the hell he is talking about. (laughs) Because what has Trump said about the Ukraine that is that is. That is articulating the get out. like This it, it, it feels like feeling in the blanks. Look, hasn't Trump said, I, I, Tr- Trump has said very aggressive things about, about how to deal with Russia, things that are more aggressive than anything the Biden administration has said. Yeah, so I, mean, I have no idea where this is coming from. It just seems wrong to me.
1: Oh, I'm not sure if he's just alluding to to your point, his previous anti-interventionist statements. It is interesting, though, because Chomsky has been very forceful in his criticism of Donald Trump. He was, you know, very aggressive about the need to vote for Joe Biden, regardless of uh, uh, his failings in the 2020 election. He believed very deeply that the environment is something that we cannot wait on and that Donald Trump's uh, kind of fascistic tendencies were another reason why one could not ever withhold their vote. I mean, I very famously in a debate with him on my show, you know, was, was so ardently against the idea of doing anything that could result in Donald Trump being president again. So the idea that he is giving kind of any quarter to an argument that, that Trump would be better policy-wise on Ukraine does seem to be an interesting departure from what he said in the past.
0: I mean, I, right, I think it's an interesting uh, sign of the times of you know the anti-interventionist left, the foreign policy left, being more aligned with you know, far left and far right, being more aligned on foreign policy. I mean, it, it right it comes through on, on this show. the show. Your suspicion, Kim's suspicion, my to some degree similar. Uh, yes, suspicion. we're doing a horseshoe theory, uh, right? No, we, we really we really are. So I I understand it conceptually, but Trump has not said the things Chomsky is yeah. saying that he said about Ukraine. Yeah, he said he, I mean, he hasn't really said anything particular. He hasn't. So now we're giving Trump points for theoretically, maybe. Being, but like it, 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 it seemed.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, look, it maybe it's indicative of how few voices there are, anti interventionist voices there are on Ukraine, I mean, period. I, I, I understand why Glenn Greenwald is wanting to hi- highlight this because it is. Chomsky is one of those people that liberals decide they care about once every four years when it's time for him to, you know, get on the horn and tell us all to vote blue no matter who, and then they ignore all of his substantive and really important criticisms of the media and politics in general during the other 365 days of the year. Um, so I understand why Glenn Greenwald wants to highlight this, even if the like connection to what Trump may. Or may I think not Trump have essentially that
0: said that Russia wouldn't do this because he's because Trump is so tough on them, the toughest anyone's ever been. Like that's what he said basically which doesn't suggest that that's not really a non-intervention. I just don't, like, I don't get, I I would love if Trump, I I, I want Trump to articulate the policy that Chomsky just described, but he just, he literally hasn't. So it's very confusing to me. It it is
1: confusing, but, you know, I think the reason it was clipped and put out there is because it's attention grabbing and it it makes it it makes people mad it makes people who want to characterize every anti-interventionist instinct from the left or the right as being putin's puppet we have come a little bit far from that narrative and as compared to where we were you know in march but we're still a little bit in that place and someone like glenn greenwald who has been wanting to ring these alarm bells for a really long time is going to use someone like chomsky who liberals do like to selectively quote to push forth this kind of argument. We'll see if it actually incites more of a commentary from Donald Trump. Maybe I'm
0: just raw because the one time we tried to talk on the show about what trump had said about ukraine uh we, we played that clip mm-hmm. which he said the election uh had been rigged which has not been rigged the election was legitimate and joe biden is our president and, and we, but we played it and forgot and forgot didn't correct that and then we got suspended from youtube yeah, so. <laughs>
1: yeah i understand i might be a little
0: sensitive <laughs> about that robbie <laughs> well up next bacha ungar sargon will join us to discuss trevor noah's unironic takedown of mainstream media stay tuned
1: This year's White House Correspondents' Dinner had a few moments of media reflection. President Biden came to the podium with no shortage of scripted zingers, but he had this to say about democracy and entertainment. Here's a little of what he said.
3: The First Amendment grants a free press extraordinary protection, but with it comes, as many of you know, a very heavy obligation <coughs> to seek the truth as best you can, not to inflame or entertain, but to illuminate and educate. I know it's tough, and I'm not being solicitous. The industry is changing significantly. There's incredible pressure on you all to deliver heat instead of shed light, because the technology is changing so much. The system is changing. But it matters. No kidding. It matters. The truth matters. American democracy is not a reality show. It's not a reality
0: show. And comedian Trevor Noah had this to add.
4: Every single one of you, whether you like it or not, is a bastion of democracy. And if you ever begin to doubt your responsibilities, if you ever begin to doubt how meaningful it is, look no further than what's happening in Ukraine. Look at what's happening there. Journalists are risking and even losing their lives to show the world what's really happening you realize how amazing it is like in America you you have the right to seek the truth and speak the truth even if it makes people in power uncomfortable even if it makes your viewers or your readers uncomfortable you understand how amazing that is I stood here tonight and I made fun of the president of the United States and I'm gonna be fine (laughs) I'm gonna be fine right Like do, you, like, do you really understand what a blessing it is? Maybe it's happened for so long that you, it might slip your mind. It's a blessing. In fact, here, ask yourself this question. Honestly, ask yourself this question. If if Russian journalists who are losing their livelihoods, as you were talking about, Steve, and, and their freedom for daring to report on what their own government is doing, if they had the freedom to write any words, to show any stories, or to ask any questions, if they had basically what you have, would they be using it in the same way that you do? Ask yourself that question every day because you have one of the most important roles in the world. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you.
1: Joining us now to discuss the media's role in conflating democracy and entertainment is deputy editor at Newsweek, Batya Unger sargan Bhatia, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So you've written uh, in your most recent book about all of the perverse incentives that have changed over the course of kind of contemporary media, where newspapers used to be funded by, you know, individual low-income people spending a cent or so to, to buy, buy the rag and find out what's going on in their communities, and how the shift to an advertising model changed those incentives to gear the news toward affluent folks. I'm not hearing that criticism come out. <laughs> here? I mean, what do you make of the nature of the criticism we're hearing now from both Joe Biden and and, um, uh, Trevor Noah?
2: Joe Biden is I believe, the president of the United States who has been most defended and most protected by, you know, the vast majority of legacy media, right? We saw this with the Hunter Biden laptop story. We see this every single day, their refusal to ask him hard questions, the the way that the media today is protecting the most powerful person on the planet. So to have him get up there and start lecturing the media about, you know, being, you know, too sensationalist, when all they do all day is protect him. I found that to be so ironic and so hilarious, like the need to move the scene of the problem, right? Exactly like you said. And I think with with Trevor Noah, it's a similar critique. Like the problem with the media right now is it's catering to very wealthy elites on both sides. And in so doing, it is not the, the the thing that's destroying the media is not a threat from the government. It's literally the threat of peer pressure of rich people, right, that they're no longer going to like you. That is the mm. problem with today's media ecosystem. You know, the, the tagline should be democracy dies under peer pressure, right? <laughs> it's not there's nobody standing there with like a gun who's going to shoot you like in Russia or they're going to like bomb you out of your apartment or throw you out a window if you report something unfavorable about joe biden but here's the problem with today's media they don't need to right that's the problem is joe biden doesn't need to throw you out a window because the media due to just purely peer pressure reasons legacy media on the left will never say anything truly dangerous or threatening to him
1: Yeah. And you can see that the manufacturing consent is not necessarily, like you say, forced. You saw Van Van Jones made some kind of mildly critical observations about why Joe Biden's poll numbers are down and trended over the weekend because people were so upset just (laughs) that he observed what the left has been saying, what has been obvious for a really long time. Uh, Well, journalist Glenn Greenwald pointed out on Twitter that Trevor Noah is a threat to Biden or anyone else. Uh, is one of the few funny things he's ever said. The, the notion that he's a threat is one of the few funny things that he's ever said. Ask Julian Assange what happens to journalists who are actually adversarial to the U.S. security state uh, and reveals official crimes. The president Noah is praising has him in
2: prison. Fair critique, Batya. It's a totally fair critique. I mean, it's just so fair. I, I when when people sort of start talking about cancel culture as comparable to you know authoritarianism or the Chinese communist um, revolution, like you know you I look at that and I say no, that's not fair because there's no state power behind it, right? It's really just peer pressure, right? But at the same time, that w- it's so awful. Like you know Trevor Noah's saying you have this freedom, right? It's true. They have so much freedom, and if you look at what they do with that freedom. They use it to bully other journalists, to smear other journalists, to expose, you know, like Twitter accounts that they don't like, you know, the legacy media used to use its immense power and its immense resources to expose corruption in the government. And today they use it to protect the government Mm -hmm. and to defend the government and protect the administration, you know, to, to jail, you know, people like Julian Assange, right. And to essentially, you know, they use their power to silence the people who dissent and who critique and who criticize you know this administration it's such a crazy thing to be happening and to see them use that as like some excuse to bloviate about democracy it's distressing
0: And there's really no better example of the overly and wrongly cozy uh, relationship between legacy media and the government than this entire event, totally. which is uh, which, a cozy relationship between me, the media, government, and celebrities involved for no reason, it's, it's really a, a, a kind of a sham with the additional, you know, switching topics just ever so slightly, with the additional layer this year of these are people who lectured you about doing anything fun or social for literally years now and then they did it and i'm sure you know i don't know what's going to happen but it would be perfectly in keeping with how these people have handled things so far to like within a few days be calling for the remasking of children or of of people entering you know the supermarket or something even after they did this perhaps because they did this if you know if cases rise for for some reason Uh, a hypocrisy that they're now just like, fully, like, 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 wallowing in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, What did you think?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's disgusting. They have one standard for themselves and each other, and another standard for us. Um, you know, the, the 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 number one form of solidarity that is alive and well in America is ruling class solidarity, and that's what you saw last. You know, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, it's what you're going to see at the Met Gala. You're going to see politicians there. You know, hobnobbing, rubbing rubbing elbows with with celebrities. I mean, that that is we we're living in a time of where politics and celebrity culture become one and the same because. Everybody's rich, right? The journalists are rich, the politicians are rich, the celebs are rich, and so they have the same economic interests. And they're all liberals, right? They're rich liberals, and so they sit there and they stew in their own juices, and they call anybody who disagrees with them racist or anybody who points out, you know, their class privilege. It's, It's really, it's really, really gross. And the masking thing, totally, Robbie, you know, of course, all the servants have to wear masks and all of the elites get to walk around without them. It's so gross. Well, I will say
1: one of one of the high points I did think was Trevor Noah calling out the hypocrisy of the mask mask mandate did mention it yeah but but he also did call out the fact that you know everyone at the event had to uh, take a a PCR test or a COVID test immediately before coming and that included not just liberals but a lot of members of conservative media who were there as well who might then return predictably to Fox News and pretend that they are not complying with those kind of COVID mandates so it does feel like there's a lot of hypocrisy across the board
2: always enough to go around.
0: (laughs) Well, CNN's Brian Stelter had a moment of self-reflection after the dinner. During his show, Reliable Sources, Stelter commented on Biden's speech and said, America's democracy is not a reality show, but is the media guilty of making it seem that way? Uh, yeah. (laughs) You
2: think? Um, listen, I, you know, in my book, I talk a lot about the history of American journalism. And, you know, it used to be even when it was catering to a more working class audience and not exclusively focused on the rich the way it is today, it was very sensationalist in nature. You know, sensationalism is not in and of itself a bad thing when it's reflecting the people who need to have their lives exposed, who need to have the, the struggles they, they that they're struggling with exposed, right? The problem right now is that it's sensationalist, but for the rich, right? The New York times has become sensationalism for the ruling class and I think that's where you know we we can feel that disconnect right like how gross it is that people who consider themselves to be like above all of this stuff are actually the most emotionally invested in the news right now Hmm.
0: yeah absolutely well Bacha thank you so much for joining us
2: thank you for having me
0: Elon Musk took a page from AOC's burn book and used it against her over the weekend. AOC slammed an unnamed man as a billionaire with an ego problem who controls a massive communication platform, to which Musk replied, stop flirting with me, I'm really shy. AOC then hit back in a now-deleted tweet, saying she was actually talking about Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Musk's response comes months after AOC was criticized for saying Republicans were mad they couldn't date her and projected their sexual frustrations onto her boyfriend's feet after a former Trump campaign advisor shared a photo on Twitter of AOC and her boyfriend vacationing in Florida to ring in the new year.
1: (laughs) AOC wasn't the only one taking jabs at Musk over the weekend. CNN zeroed in on Musk's Twitter takeover and blamed the billionaire and Trump for, quote, opening the gates of hell when it came to free speech. Let's watch.
3: There's a bigger problem here about how we are going to control the channels of communication in mm-hmm. this country. In 1927 we had the Radio Act, 1934 the Communications Act, Congress stepped in, we made rules. FCC mm-hmm. wasn't great, but it's still regulating the broadcast industry. You right, can't yes. use vulgar language, you can't do all these things with speech. We gave over our, uh, what amounts to our airwaves or our internet waves to Mark Zuckerberg, and Elon Musk. Oh, and we are in so much trouble because those guys believe in making money. We've already seen that with the 2016 election mm. in Zuckerberg when he was taking rubles for ads from Russia and say, oh, I think it's crazy to think they had any influence on this election. Mm. Musk is the same. Musk doesn't want it. oh, you know, he's upset with the SEC, tried to, how dare they question him. You know what I'm saying? This is dangerous. We can't think anymore in this country. We don't have people. <laughs> no, I'm serious. We don't have people in Congress who can make regulations that can make it work. I think we can look to the Western countries in Europe for how they are trying to limit it. But you need, you need controls on this. You need regulation. You cannot let these guys control discourse in this country or we are headed to hell. We are there. Trump opened the gates of hell, and now they're chasing us
6: down. Wait, we got that-
1: So those guys are making money. Those guys are making money, not MSNBC, CNN, and Fox who are running Raytheon ads because, you know, Grandma, when she's watching the news, wants to know if she needs to buy a a cruise missile.
0: No, you could not have an articulation of a worldview that is more antithetical to mine than what that professor of media studies just had to say. Like That is the view that, oh, no, other people— are having some control, some input over what is allowed to be said. They have expanded what is allowed to be said. And I hate that I, a professor of media studies, and you, a host of a a left of center cable show, no longer have have the ability to put up the guardrails on what is allowed to be discussed people are making up their own minds they're saying things we're uncomfortable with that we don't like that we think are crazy and we're furious about it we want the government to stop it that's what he said i want the government to stop other people from being able to speak as openly as they can now
1: yeah look and and it was kind of (laughs) telling when he you know alluded to the regulations that the sec implements the only one he could kind of come up with you just can't say profanity on the news i mean I hope you can articulate a higher stake for why there should be regulation. But I think that there should be regulations. And I think that there are problems with the existing social media Mm -hmm. infrastructure. Right. I think it is, um, you know, a problem that, you know, we are all hoping and praying that a series of benevolent billionaires manages these sites in a way that is, you know, conducive to democracy and free speech. I mean, I think there's. There are arguments that are being had here and elsewhere about whether or not Elon Musk is going to be better than the last leadership of Twitter, whether or not, you know, what happens on Twitter is better than what happens on CNN, which I frankly think is true. I think there's a democratizing effect of social media that has resulted in many people having careers and voices that otherwise would not have had that kind of access, myself included. However, to take the time on a, sta- on a show like mm-hmm. this and not make those kind of substantive criticism and try to get into the difficult issue of how to have moderation that is conducive to the needs of democracy and instead to bloviate about this apparent lack uh, or loss of control, right. to your point,
0: it's really showing his hand. Right, and, and, and where's the... I absolutely agree with you. you know, these are difficult problems. They have to be worked out. But wh- why the confidence that either government regulators or the talking heads assembled there would do a better job of of controlling the discourse in a way that doesn't have massive blind spots and prevents yeah. us from talking about things we ought to be able to talk about that are in the public interest, because they show, and I talked about this on my radar today, every time they do exert that control, so many of the times they exert that control, in very consequential ways, they turn down the dial so that you actually can't talk about things you should be able to talk about. Hunter Biden laptop story, yeah. lab leak, other things, so much related to, to, to COVID, to Russia, et cetera. I mean, he committed a... Uh, I, what I would call an error there in, in overstating mm-hmm. the amount of of, of Russian involvement and influence. Yes, there was some, but they the, the people on that panel think it was the decisive and only thing that caused uh, th- that that caused Trump to be elected. We know that's not yeah. true. It,
1: this is why so many people end up being free speech absolutists, not yeah. because they don't think that you know harassment is a problem or that the culture of these websites can drive people away if it gets too crazy or you know that in the right. abstract there there are there are rules that we kind of feel instinctively we would like to have in place but because it is so difficult it is so difficult to come up with a principal metric that isn't being selectively implemented based on your personal ideology it's why we used to champion the aclu Mm. for defending nazis rights right to march nazis literal nazis literal nazis and now we have even the aclu taking different kinds of positions in these moments It's not—sometimes I think free speech absolutists, people like Glenn Greenwald, people like Matt Taby, who catch a lot of flack sometimes for the way they come down on these issues, they're characterized as not caring about the harmful effects of kind of unmitigated, uh, unfettered free speech. It's not that. It's that when you see moments like this, it becomes, I think, a natural instinct to say, I'd rather— I'd rather take my chances with the wolves,
0: yeah, yeah. than
1: whatever this uh, zookeeper they're <laughs>
0: proposing is going to do. Because we have to remember about the kind of kinds of things that happened under the previous iteration yeah. of the media speech landscape, where there were a lot of guardrails, and you ended up having a lot of sort of fabricated consensus to do horrible things. The Iraq War yes. being a project that takes place in a media environment yes. where where what you're allowed to say and discuss is closely kept by people who who were wrong yes. and to some degree lied yes. about what we should do and what was going on that uh, that's a kind of consensus that that is much less likely to be assembled yes. in, in in today's day like even, even with what's going on in Ukraine yes uh, uh, uh i think in a uh, closer, you can make a, a better argument f- for what we're doing there now than what we did in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, but it's still, it's a very, it's being debated. It's There's a lot of opposition to it.
1: And you will have Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, going to visit and having these talks uh, in, in Kiev and probably coming back to talk on mainstream media and it being reported on mainstream media with no conversation about how he was on the, you know, a Raytheon right. executive and all these kind of things, and the revolving door is is invisibilized on these channels. And again, like I, I said it up top as a glib kind of joke, but there is a reason these pharmaceutical companies and defense contractors and all of these interest groups advertise on these stations. It is not because anybody watching MSNBC is in the market for a tank. It's, yeah. That is not it. Yeah. But if they buy the ad time, they cannot be critical of those industries that are being advertised on the station. That is how all of this works. And none of that is talked about. None of the background of any of these commentators is ever uh, unpacked. And we're supposed to sit here and believe that they have the interest in the, the best interest of, at heart in terms of true, sincere information. Again, the doggy dog world of the internet, it's not always pleasant. Uh, we have both been on the receiving end of a great deal of negativity, but if I'm asked what the alternative is, and the alternative space I would like to live in is, there is no way in the world I would want it to move more in the direction of these yeah. kinds of networks, even if it means this kind of unknown territory of um, the hell yeah. the hell gates being open.
0: We, they we, we, well, we can't right, we can't <laughs> r- close Pandora's box. Right. Back up. Like it just we can't. We're not going back to that. It cannot be done. I don't think it would be if it could be done, I would be against it, but it can't be done. So we we should stop pretending we can go back to some previous media iteration where there are much fewer ways to express your mind and talk to people and communicate with people. And we're just all going to trust the three uh, cable stations or a handful of newspapers who just who who have always just parroted as we're learning now what the officials think. Yeah, And and they have this cozy relationship. is not a new thing. It's always existed. We're just more, we're inundated by it now because people who don't have that cozy relationship are able to speak more freely and to challenge it. Yeah, 100%. We're not going back. Not going back, guys. (laughs) Tomorrow on Rising, Dr. Trita Parsi will join us to weigh in on the U.S.'s pivot in strategy to weaken Russia rather than strictly defend the Ukraine.
1: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, We are now available anywhere you listen
0: in podcasts. Yep, check that out, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye.